Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Joyce Tildesley for a conversation about a previous queen of Egypt, Queen Nefertiti, who lived in the 14th century BCE. And Dr. Tildesley joins the show to speak about who she was and the life she lived. Dr. Tildesley is a British archaeologist and Egyptologist. She's professor of Egyptology in the Department of Classics, Ancient History, Archaeology, and Egyptology within the School of Arts, Languages, and Cultures at the University of Manchester, based in the UK. She has written many publications over her career, including a couple books that are germane to this topic. The first one, Nefertiti, Egypt's Sun Queen, which was published by Viking Adult. And the second one, Nefertiti's Face, The Creation of an Icon, which was published in the UK by Profile Books and in the US by Harvard University Press. Welcome to the call, Joyce. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. It is wonderful to have you on the show and to speak with you about Nefertiti today. Uh, so let's start with a broad contextual conversation to get get it going and then we can work our way uh, through the conversation and work our way into the details. So if you were to summarize contextually uh, Nefertiti, uh, who, who was Nefertiti? Okay, Nefertiti was the wife of a pharaoh or king of Egypt called Akhenaten. And he was an unusual pharaoh in that he worshipped one god. Most pharaohs worship lots of gods, but he worshipped one god who he called the Aten. And the Aten was a sun god. And to do this, he lived in a city which he built called Amarna. So the court lived at this city of Amarna, this new city, and Nefertiti lived there with her husband and children. And they ruled from there for about 17 years. And then the city was deserted, the religion essentially failed, everything went back to how it had been. But Amarna survived in an archaeological record. So when many, many years later, archaeologists came to excavate Amarna, they found a lot of information about this woman, Nefertiti, and her husband, Akhenaten. And in particular, they found a beautiful head or bust, which is currently displayed in Berlin, in Berlin Museum. And I think a lot of people will be very familiar with this head even if they don't know anything about ancient Egypt, because it is, I think, quite rightly reckoned to be one of the most beautiful images from the ancient world. And it shows Nefertiti wearing a crown, um, not having any hair, actually. She's bald underneath the crown, but strikingly beautiful. So I think that a lot of people will be familiar with the look of Nefertiti, even if they don't actually know much about her life and times. Isn't that uh, interesting? Okay, so we'll, there's a lot we can kind of get into in this con conversation so let's uh and and we'll certainly go there at some point with the um and, and i'll do my best with the pronunciations of of course but uh the the city armenon and the uh, deity that uh uh her husband at least uh worshipped artem um but before we before we get into some of that stuff so how do contemporarily how do scholars um the public, etc. How, how contemporarily, how do people actually know that Nefertiti existed at one point in time? Well, because we have this city and they lived there and they ruled from there and it was a new city. So nobody had, it, well, there was nothing there before. It was complete virgin land and they built it from scratch. So they built it with their own monuments and they put their own images everywhere. And it's particularly true. I mean, the Egyptians were very keen on putting their own images up anyway, the Egyptian royal family. But at Amarna, 
where there was only one God. There are a lot of images of the royal family, whereas in other parts of Egypt and at other times, we might have expected to find images of gods and the royal family. At Amarna, we only have images really of the royal family. So we have an awful lot of images of King Akhenaten and his queen Nefertiti. We also have writings about them, for example, round the city. He surrounded it by massive stone, what we call them stela, they're massive sort of slabs of stone which are engraved with his intentions for the city that he's going to build it, he's going to dedicate it to the sun god and so on. And he mentions there as well that his wife is Nefertiti. So she's really, really well documented. And in part, this is because when he died and the religion failed and everything went back to normal during the reign of Tutankhamun, Amarna was abandoned and no one built on top of it. So as an archaeological site, it's, it's really excellent. Other cities in Egypt were built on top of or, or flattened and rebuilt again, but Amarna stayed pretty much as it was, and it gives us a whole wealth of evidence. So I guess Nefertiti's story really is told to us through archaeology. Was her tomb a skeleton, a mummy? Was anything like that ever found for Nefertiti? Ah, that's a really, really interesting question. We have a royal tomb at Amarna, but we don't necessarily know who was buried in it. And even if she was buried in it, it doesn't mean that she was mo wasn't moved later because when Amarna was abandoned and Tutankhamun came on the throne, it gets quite complicated at this point. He might well have emptied the royal tomb of all the bodies in it and moved them mm. with him when he moved away from the city. There are people who believe that she was not buried at Amarna, but that she outlived her husband and was buried somewhere else. And there are even people who believe that Nefertiti was buried in the tomb of Tutankhamun in a secret chamber. This is a fairly recent theory about her. There are also several female mummies that have been identified as Nefertiti. So all these are possible and that all these, these different theories are believed by different people. Personally, I believe that she died at Amarna and was buried at Amarna. And I believe that we haven't yet found her body. But this is the thing about Egyptology, it, it's absolutely excellent because there are so many points for discussion and for people to have their own opinions. And I think if you've got any two Egyptologists and you ask them the same question, they'd probably give you a different answer. Well, that's uh, captivating. Uh, they're, they're potentially, uh, they're spec yeah, you're speculating that she, she might be there somewhere, her, 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 her uh, skeleton, and it just hasn't been found yes. yet. Yes, I mean, if I, we would assume that she would have been mummified um but beyond that um it's, it's very very difficult to say where she might be now okay so i want to ask this question then i haven't been to this site right um so i can't you know i i i haven't like you know walked through it or anything like that what but egyptologists have and they've they've done work on this site uh so so what what about uh the site and what's been done on the site from an archaeology perspective has you believe and speculate that uh, her her skeleton just hasn't been been found? And what I'm kind of getting at with that is like, why why has not everything in in uh, in a to a reasonable degree been excavated at this site yet? Because the royal tomb at Amarna was discovered um, before the archaeologists started to excavate the site properly, and it was robbed. So by the time archaeologists got there to record it properly, it was very difficult to see what had been, um, who had been actually buried in there for the first first days. Hmm. There's also, we have very, very strong evidence 
that when Tutankhamun came to the throne, he decided that the city of Amarna would be abandoned because it was a failure, it hadn't worked out, and he moved the royal court back to the previous um, two capital cities of, of Egypt, which would be Thebes or modern Luxor in the south, and Memphis, which is near modern Cairo in the north. And he abandoned Amarna. But when he did this, abandoning Amarna, if he'd left any bodies in the royal tombs, he would have known that they would have been robbed really, really quickly because royal burials were full of, of really expensive grave goods and, and the bodies themselves may well have amulets and so on and they might have golden coffins and so on. So it seems very likely that he moved all the royal bodies to Thebes, modern Luxor, and buried them in or around the Valley of the Kings. So it depends whether he took the decision to move Nefertiti, assuming that she'd already died. But there are some people who think she hadn't died. Some people think she outlived her husband and was contemporary or died just before Tutankhamun. And in that case, she would have been originally buried in Thebes. The problem is we don't have a burial for every king and queen of Egypt. We have burials for most of the kings of Egypt, but a lot of the queens are still missing. And we have, on the other hand, a lot of female mummies that are clearly mummies of elite people, probably royal family, but we don't exactly know who they are. So matching the bodies up with the, um, the missing people is mm -hmm. difficult. And of course, there's also likely to be tombs that we haven't discovered. So it, it gets quite an archeological tangle. Probably one of the features about Egyptology that uh, keeps scholars' imaginations captivated and busy. Absolutely, yes, yes. Trying to piece it together. It's real detective work. Yeah, it sounds like a puzzle. Uh, what's, what's known, if anything, about um, when and where she was born? We don't know where she was born. Um, her name is interesting because Nefertiti literally means the beautiful woman has come. Now, Egyptologists originally when they found this name thought oh that's that's an odd name maybe she's a foreign princess who came to egypt and changed her name possibly because her foreign name was unpronounceable to the egyptians now we realize that it's actually not that strange a name other egyptian ladies have similar names and we think that actually the beautiful woman is not a reference to nefertiti herself but to the goddess hathor so her parents named her after the goddess hathor and it just we've, we've misinterpreted it but certainly at the dawn of Egyptology, it was thought that she might be a foreign princess. These days, we don't believe that. We tend to think that she was the, the daughter of a high-ranking official at court whose name is I. And this is where it gets even more complicated, so bear with me. Mm -hmm. I, we think, was the brother of Queen T. And Queen T was the mother of Akhenaten, Nefertiti's husband. So effectively, Nefertiti and um, Akhenaten would have been cousins. It would have been a cousin marriage. So she's not born straight into the royal family. She's not a princess, but she's still, you know, she's not your average person walking down the street. She's, she's, she's very high ranking. And this seems to fit with what we know about marriage customs in the royal family. Um, it would, it, had she been foreign born, it's very unlikely we'd know anything about her because foreign born princesses did marry into the royal family but they didn't become the queen consort. They didn't become the chief queen. Um, they, they tended to live in a harem palace and, and um, we don't hear much about them at all. So I think the fact that she's such a prominent individual suggests that she's Egyptian born. And I, I am definitely going with the idea that her father is I, who is a prominent courtier, probably the brother of Queen T, who will become the queen mother, 
And to add even more confusion, after the end of Akhenaten and after the end of Tutankhamun, I himself will become king of Egypt. Okay, and Akhenaten, uh, he was a pharaoh, right? And, uh, yes. uh, and what dynasty was he in? We're in the 18th dynasty and we're at, towards the end of it. Okay. His parents are called T and Amenhotep III. And in fact, he isn't born Akhenaten. He changes his name to reflect his, his love of the sun god, the Aten. Okay. Because, yeah, I mean, he, he, worships, he worships this god and it influences his whole life. But from the point he comes to the throne, he decides that he will focus on this one god. And we can see it in images, in, in two-dimensional images. And it's basically just a disc, a circle. And in the, in the art, it has very long, thin rays that come out of the circle and the rays have little hands on the end which hold the anchor of life so we see this sun god shining down on the royal family it signs down on akhenaten and nefertiti and because he's so dedicated to this god this is why he moves away um to amana but this is i mean it sounds quite simple and these days you know someone being dedicated to a, a, a god or a cult i suppose is, is not that unusual but what's really strange about this is that traditionally the pharaoh of egypt is the one person who can communicate with all the gods. And Egypt has many gods. Egypt has had many gods for many hundreds of years. So Akhenaten should be, in theory, communicating between the people of Egypt and all their gods, the traditional ones like Osiris, the god of the dead, and, and Hathor, and Isis, and all the gods that I think people will have heard of, Anubis is connected with mummification, any god you can think of. He is the one person who can channel communication to them. So when he decides to basically abandon all those gods and just go for one god this is almost a dangerous situation for egypt because up till now the egyptian people have been relying on the pharaoh to communicate with the gods and make sure that the gods are happy and suddenly he's saying i'm not going to do this i'm only going to communicate with one god and this 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 god will be the sun disk the Aten. and that is potentially very dangerous because if the old gods are unhappy goodness knows what will happen to egypt so it's, it's not just a religion that affects him. It's something that really affects the Egyptian people as well. It, it's a very dramatic move to make this change. To, it's not monotheism in that he allows some of the old gods to exist. He recognizes them, but he himself is very much focused on this one god. What was the geopolitical environment like in Egypt during this period of time? That was a question... I was going to ask regardless, but um, now part of why I asked uh, what I'm thinking about behind that question too is, was there a lot of uh, challenges that the monarchy would have been going through during Nefertiti's life, during her husband's life? Were there, were there wars? Was there other challenges that were happening? Can you speak a little bit about that, uh, that the, the geopolitical um, in, in, in environment and uh, and if there was any um, real strifes that were going on? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because you would imagine that certainly the priests of the old cults would not be happy with this change to one god because the gods that they worship have been completely downgraded, if not banished. But ancient Egypt is really a dictatorship, I would say, at this time. Akhenaten is a dictator. He, people do what he says. He's the king. He has absolute power he is so much more powerful than any other living person because he is part way between the gods and the people and everyone has to do what he says so he's the head of the army in theory 
he's the head of every cult in the land, in theory, and he's also responsible for the civil service and making sure that Egypt functions correctly. So everything channels through him. And it's been like this for many, many hundreds of years. I think this is why there's never really ever been a serious challenge to having a pharaoh on the, king, on the throne. The Egyptian people don't experiment with any form of democracy. They, they need this pharaoh. They need this person who can communicate with the gods, take responsibility for everything and make sure that Egypt functions correctly. I'm not saying that there weren't occasions when kings were um, assassinated. We know of some and there were probably more that we don't know of. But every time that happened, another king took their place. There's no experiment with any other system at all. So when Akhenaten said, we're all going to worship this sun god, everybody worship the sun god. But what I would say, though, is the environment around him is very much an elite environment. So the elite who surrounded him would indeed worship the sun gods. If you're thinking of the ordinary Egyptian people, and, and most people would have been peasants, they would have been working the land, they would have been illiterate, they probably wouldn't know even who the pharaoh was. Their communication with the state gods would have been very limited. You, you didn't go off to so the equivalent of a church and worship the state gods. That was all done for you by the pharaoh. So for maybe the peasant people who were the vast majority of the people, this change wasn't very dramatic. They might even have been unaware of it. They might have continued as they always had done because they were so remote. But certainly for the elite Egyptians, this was a huge change because they were forced to leave their homes and, and leave their gods and, and move to Amarna. Um, one particular change I think was has been challenging for them is that in the old religion, there was a promise of an afterlife for everybody who had the correct rituals. So you knew that if you, were, if you could afford to have a good tomb and be mummified and, and have priests say the right prayers and so on, you would have an afterlife. And by abolishing Osiris, the god of the dead, Akhenaten removed this idea of an afterlife for his people too. And it now is the stage where the royal family are assured some sort of afterlife, but the ordinary people, the elite, aren't. And I think that for them particularly must have been a problem. But one thing about Egyptian writing and the Egyptians, they, they don't write anything down that might be seen as bad. Because there's always a danger with words being quite magical that if you wrote down a bad thing, it might actually come true. Also, of course, as I've said, the king is a dictator. So these two things combined, we don't get any hint that anyone objected to this, but we wouldn't expect to find it. Um, I imagine that those who were forced to leave their ancestral homes and ancestral tombs and, and travel with Akhenaten weren't particularly happy. It's, it's remarkable how quickly the new religion and the new city were dropped after he died. But during his reign, we don't get any hint of anybody actually opposing this in any way. Reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of uh, like Tac Tacitus in, in, in Rome at one point doing uh, biographies on emperors, but never writing a biography on a current emperor. <laughs> Yes, 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 exactly. That, that, yeah, that I mean, came up. Shakespeare, Shakespeare writes about kings of Egypt, but if it's of England, but nothing that would be seems critical to the current regime, you, you just don't do it. Yeah, that, that came up in a uh, episode with uh, Dr. Gavin Kelly from uh, uh, the University of Edinburgh uh, a few weeks ago. Um, so Thebes was the, um, pr so Thebes 
prior to the move to Armenen was the capital. Is that correct? Yeah, of, it was, of Egypt? There were, I would say there were two capitals. Thebes was pretty much the religious capital. And in the north Memphis, which is near to modern Cairo, served more as the administrative capital. Okay. And kings tended actually not to stay in one place. They didn't have like one capital like we do today. They had a whole series of small palaces up along the Nile and they would move. They, would, they wouldn't stay in one place necessarily. I think because Egypt is a very long, thin country, it made a lot of political sense to be seen, to visit local temples, to remind people that you're there and to travel between your various palaces and mooring places. There's another thing that made Akhenaten unusual in Nefertiti is that they seem to have stayed in one place. They didn't travel up and down Egypt. They didn't feel the need to show themselves to the people. But yeah, Tutankhamun restored Egypt. And as far as we can see, you know, Thebes, um, Thebes and which is modern Luxor, became really important again. And the Valley of the Kings became the royal cemetery again. We're talking about um, her life. So don't want to spend too too much time because obviously an entire episode could be dedicated on uh, yeah. right on her husband um i can add in yeah. um but he's obviously a very relevant figure um in this conversation uh what's known about um what's known about how he came across the the sun deity and what's known if anything about why he he made such a uh such a change um, from okay. a belief system yeah again we don't know but we know that the artem wasn't brand new he didn't invent or, or just come across this god the, the artem had been there for some time but had not been a powerful god and it's but had been slowly slowly becoming more powerful because his father and his grandfather had been interested in solar gods in sun gods and egypt had many sun gods so he seems to have picked up on that there's a possibility that by worshipping this one this one god or devoting himself to this one god, he was in some way trying to link himself to his dead father, it's been suggested, because his father also had an interest in, in sun gods. Um, he's also using it to um, boost his own divinity, because with the traditional gods gone, and we just have one god now shining in the sky, Akhenaten uses himself and Nefertiti to take the place of the old gods, and we find instances where the elites are encouraged to worship the new god, the Aten, but they do it in front of images of the king and queen. They, don't, they, they can't connect directly to the new gods, so they have to do it through the king and queen. So you could say very cynically that he's using the Aten not through personal devotion, but as a means of boosting his own power, his own prestige. I mean, presumably his fairy didn't really need boosting but also of reducing the power of the other cults. It's been argued that the other cults in Egypt were becoming too powerful and he took back control in this way. Or you can go the other way and say it's a genuine religious conviction that he's acquired. Again, it used to be thought that he got this idea from his mother, who was also at one point identified as a foreign princess. Um, early Egyptologists were very keen on the idea of foreign, foreigners coming into Egypt and bringing ideas. And we realize now that this is just misguided, that the Egyptians you know, thought up their own ideas. Um, again, his mother, there's no evidence at all that she was foreign born. And in fact, we, have, we do have the mummies of her parents. So we do know that she, she is Egyptian. Um, so he didn't get this idea from her, but for quite some time, it was actually blamed on her that she brought this strange religion to the royal family and he was following his mother. But we, we know that that's not true now. Um, and people flip between the ideas. Is it personal religious conviction? Is it some way of worshipping his dead father? Is it a cynical attempt to take over the cults? Again, you'll, 
again there's no right answer there we don't really know or presumably there is a right answer but we don't know what it is okay and she was married to a pharaoh so we can call her a queen right yes absolutely yes okay. yes in fact again this this is interesting um the king is so different to everybody else the king also doesn't have to be male the king usually is male but we get very a few women who do rule as kings and because in the english language queen can either mean the wife of a king who, which is a subordinate position or it can mean a ruling queen who rules by herself like our own queen elizabeth we tend to call the female rulers who take the role who rule by themselves we tend to call them female kings to distinguish them from the women who are married to kings so in this case, we would call her a queen. She's definitely a queen. She's a queen consort. She's the, the chief queen, because Akhenaten would have had many queens. Um, but I wouldn't call her a female king. I would call her a queen. And if she happened to have been a, the primary ruler, uh, we, we could also her call her, but we could also call her a pharaoh in that case? Yes, yes. Okay. Pharaoh is, is, is not necessarily male. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think of like Cleopatra the Seventh. Yes, for instance. exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in uh, in this city, um, Arminen, um, can you describe the corpus of uh, writings? I presume they're inscriptions. Um, you know, p please clarify if there uh, if it was hieroglyphic writing. But can you can you describe the corpus of uh, writings that pertain to Nefertiti? And can you just kind of describe what scholars uh, uh, pull from from those writings to help us? understand better who she was and the life she lived okay we have um two types of writings one type is quite unexpected in that we have a diplomatic archive of letters that was sent across the near east this isn't in egyptian writing it's not in hieroglyphs it's actually in wedge cuneiform wedges and it is this diplomatic correspondence but unfortunately nefertiti is is virtually absent from those letters. They don't really help us to understand her position at all. The other sort of writing we have is the monumental inscriptions within and about the city themselves. And these are written in hieroglyphic script, which is the pic picture script. Um, it's not the script that everyday Egyptians use. They, they used a more cursive form of script, an easier to write form of script, but anything monumental was done in hieroglyphs. However, they're very formulaic. They don't really tell us her story. I mean, this is what we would really like to know. We don't have anything like diaries or private letters or anything that tells us her particular story. We have formula that say that she is the beloved wife of the king, that he intends her to be buried at Amarna when she dies. We have images of her all the time. And this really is where we're getting our information from because we're lacking... I mean, we have the details. We know that she's his wife. These, these inscriptions tell us that. But they're not telling us more about her role and that's what we want to know so instead of using the writing to interpret her role we're using the images that we have of akhenaten and nefertiti and this is where we're lucky because he commissions a huge amount of art for his new city which features the king and queen and we look at them and we look at her crown and we look at the way the two are together and we look at them before the gods and we can see what they're doing and we have to try and interpret from that what we know about her um we do however know that she had six daughters and we can name them because we have the names of the daughters in inscriptions but we don't for example know she had any sons now she might have done or she might not because at this time sons wouldn't normally be included in formal 
family art in the royal family because while a daughter was always part of her father's family and would be supportive to her father a son was potentially the next pharaoh the next king of egypt and so would be excluded from formal art so we can say with certainty that she has at least six daughters but we can't say whether or not she had any sons we can see that she does things like we have an image of her smiting we call it smiting basically hitting an enemy of Egypt. It's a scene that you see on temples again over the centuries. Kings do it to, to show the power of Egypt over foreigners and enemies and so on. We actually have an image of her doing this to what looks like um, a female captive. So it suggests she's a powerful woman. We have images of her offering to the God or standing with Akhenaten when he offers to the God. So we can see that she's got religious power. But unfortunately, none of this is explained to us. And this is why, again, it makes such a excellent detective story we have to piece together clues from looking at her crown and her posture and her relationship to him in art and so on and try and work out exactly what's going on okay sorry what was this what was smiting in this period of time smiting is like when you 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 quite often see kings doing on the outside of temples and it's an image we see right from the beginning of the dynastic age right to the ptolemies at the end and basically the king stands there being enormous and has an enemy or a group of enemies at his feet or that he's grasping by the hair and he has his arm up in the air and he's got either a club or a, or a sword or something and he's about to kill them okay it's, okay it's, it's very much a ritual scene we actually see nefertiti doing this which we don't see other queens doing and we're left wondering do we see this because amana is very very different or do we see this because more art has survived because the city hasn't been built over, so we, it, it's actually survived as evidence? We don't know. But either way, it does show that she has political power because this is um, a symbolic a symbolic gesture that basically protects Egypt and the king against enemies. Yeah, the the, the, the latter, not to disclude the, the, the previous couple, but the latter certainly came to my, my, my mind when you um, when trying to interpret what that could mean about her life. Um. Is it believed that, uh, and it could be an evidence, uh, that she worshipped um, Artem as well? And with that said, I can imagine that um, she would have been, if she didn't really believe uh, um, in the in that deity, it would have been a very uh, precarious situation for her. Yes, yes. I think if you were around Akhenaten, you would, you would do what he wanted, no matter what you thought in your head. Um, you would do as he wanted to do. And in fact, she was one of the routes towards the God for the people to follow. It seems like when he got rid of the old gods, he noticed that almost there was a gap, that there was particularly no female figure. The Artan is is genderless, technically, because it's just a sun disk and has no body. But it seems like the people who were used to seeing images of gods doing things were lacking and, and needed someone to relate to. So he uses his wife actually almost as a living goddess for the people to approach the art and through her. Um, and that's one of the reasons why there's so many images of her, because it seems that everybody who was elite and had an elite feel of Atamana would require an image or an engraving of Akhenaten and Nefertiti to do their prayers in front of. And you get the impression they're doing this in quite a public way. They want to be seen to be doing this. You know, there's got to be no doubt about what they're doing. So, so far, based on everything you've said, they, they sound like they get along very well. Um, what kind of relationship do you think they had? Uh, again, we don't know. I mean, he's, he, she is his chief wife. 
But what we don't know is whether he picked her to be the chief wife or maybe his parents did. You know, it's, it's hard to say. He says he says nice things about her. He refers to her constantly in, in inscriptions as his beloved wife. But again, that's very formulaic. And, and whether it means that she really is his beloved wife. Having said that, I mean, there's a lot of the art is quite natural looking. It's not like standard ancient Egyptian art. And we have images that, that show them holding hands together. We have what looks like images of her sitting on his knee. We have a lot of images of them with their children. And certainly the impression that we're given is that they are, in fact, a really close couple. I mean, I, I'm, I'm cautious, you know, you have to be careful, don't you, when you're looking at images of kings and queens and, and you know, they, they, it's all propaganda. Well, I think but, uh, I think many family con conversations uh, you, you you have to got to be uh, cautious of that, right? Because what what yeah. might what might be happening within the family might be different than uh, what you see on you know in public. As, absolutely, but certainly the impression that he wants, to, and I'm assuming that he's in charge of, of saying what art is acceptable and what's not. The impression given is that she is a, he finds her a very beautiful woman, and that they're together and they're a very loving couple. Okay. Is anything known about um, the involvement she might have had in policy decisions, um, how she might have um, operated from a professional level? Is, is anything known or can be now you mentioned you mentioned the um, the smiting earlier, right? So I think something can be inferred probably from that or speculated. But is there anything else uh, beyond that in the in the in the records around how she uh, was as as uh, as a ruler? No, and it's interesting that she's not included in the diplomatic correspondence because her mother-in-law is mentioned. Queen T is mentioned in that. Um, the, the one thing we do see though is that we see her when her husband is handing out rewards of gold. Um, he stands on the palace balcony. It's called the window appearance, but it's a balcony, and he he hands out gold to his followers who are down below, and she helps him do that. And she's got a lot more movement to her in these images. We also see her riding with him in a chariot. And again, there's a sense of movement there. Normal conventional Egyptian art can, can appear quite static, but you see the king doing something and the, the queen will just stand behind him in a supportive role. And it's very clear to Mana that, that Nefertiti is shown participating and her daughters are quite often in these scenes and are participating rather than just watching. Again, is that because the art style has changed? Is it because of the new religion? Is it because she is actually more active than previous queens have been? It's very difficult for us to tell. But it's again, it opens up the possibility that she is perhaps playing a more active role than queens have done before. Okay. Um, how do you think she was as a as a mother? You mentioned she. What's known is she had six uh, daughters. Is is anything known or can can you, can be inferred about how she was as a uh, as a parent? Well, again, we have we have scenes. Um, there's, there's a particularly famous scene and we can see the royal couple and they're sitting facing each other and it looks like they're having a picnic and the king has got the eldest royal princess and she's she's on his knee and the queen has got at this point there are only three princesses so she's got the, the second eldest and the baby and the baby's crawling up on her shoulders and is playing with ornaments on her crown and again certainly looking at that it very much gives the impression that, that she's very, very fond of her children. And this is quite remarkable because up to this point, royal children have pretty much been invisible. There's been a few exceptions, but on the whole, 
royal families don't really show their children at all till they get older. So Akhenaten is showing his daughters, he's featuring them in a very regular and unexpected way. And certainly um, we see that. We have a much later and much sadder scene, which seems to show the death of the second-born princess, Mekitaten. And though it looks as if um, Nefertiti is crying, it's very difficult to tell. It's very badly damaged and very simple drawings and so on. But, you know, it, it looks like there's a lot of emotion there. There's absolutely nothing to suggest that she wasn't anything other than um, a good and loving mother. Okay. Uh, what's what's known about the later period of her life, including her death? Well, again, it's, it's all fascinating, but it gets mm. it gets the story gets even more convoluted. <laughs> For a long time, she seemed to vanish. We we had quite a lot of information up to about up to about the twelfth year of his reign. You need to know that the Egyptian reigns were dated from the the reign of the king, so it starts with year one, and then when the next king comes to the throne, they'll start with year one again. So we count Akhenaten's reign. He is he's on the throne for 17 years, so we date it by his, his year length. So up to his year 12, she seems to be quite prominent. And then she seemed to disappear. And people speculated about that because it didn't seem likely that she did just disappear, but there was no sign of her. And surely if she died, it would have been recorded and all sorts of theories were developed. The theory that, for example, she'd been banished because something had gone wrong. Maybe she wanted him to be stronger in this new religion, or maybe she wanted to rebel against the new religion. And they even found some texts that were written which seemed to have her name sort of scratched out with somebody else's name written above them, which suggested that she'd been banished. But we now know that this is wrong because the name underneath is not her name, it's somebody else's name, so we can disregard that evidence. And also... We now know that she, in fact, was still queen consort, Akhenaten's wife, in year 16. So although from year 12 to year 16, we have very little new information about her, we know that she's there and she's continuing the same role. But this, this supposed gap has led to all sorts of speculation about what she might have been doing in, in the meantime. My guess is that she just continued as she had been um, and that eventually that she died and was buried at Amarna. But as I say, other people think, no, she, she did something different, that maybe the reason she's missing is because she stopped being the queen and started to become a co-ruler with the king. And people have suggested that actually he started to not use her as a queen, but as another king, as a female king. So the two of them ruled together because when she was a queen, she was very much junior to him. But if he made her a co-ruler, she would be, if not as equal, equal-ish. Um, and this has been suggested that this is what happened to her, that she, in this gap, became so elevated that she was powerful enough to become his, his almost equal. And, and, and lots of people believe that. I mean, the, the, I think the Egyptology community is divided on it. For me, I always go for the easiest option, like Occam's mm -hmm. razor, it's called, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. probably the simplest explanation is the, is, the, is the best. So my simple explanation is that she continued as queen until she died. But if you're looking for her and, and looking for evidence that, that she might have done this, you can find just about enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that, well, maybe she did do this. Very difficult to tell. One thing that um, I should mention here is that towards the end of, of the period of Tamana, an individual called Smenkare appears. And unfortunately, we don't know if Smenkare is male or female, but it does seem that Smenkare 
takes the throne and rules possibly as co-regent with Akhenaten, possibly a co-regent and also slightly after Akhenaten. And it's been suggested that Smenkare might be Nefertiti using a different name. Now, mm. to me, this isn't right. Um, to me, what we do know is that a, a year or so later, Tutankhamun comes to the throne. And I would have Smenkare as Tutankhamun's brother. And I, in fact, I have a body that I think is Smenkare, which is male. So I don't accept that. But again, we're, we're, de we're dealing with little tiny strands of evidence. Um, and it's, I, I realise this is really confusing. As I'm explaining to you, I can see how really confusing this so it's, is. It's all, it, it's all good. That's why I ask follow-up questions. <laughs> I'm very good at that. <laughs> So interesting, the idea that you can have this person who is a ruler, and he's a, Smenkare is a real person. I'm not suggesting that Smenkare doesn't exist. I'm just suggesting that he's, he's a brother to Tutankhamun, and that what happens is Nefertiti dies, then Akhenaten dies. Smenkare very briefly holds the throne. He dies, and his brother Tutankhamun takes the throne, married to one of Nefertiti's daughters. Because, um, again, I think that's the easiest explanation, and quite often the easiest explanation works. And I think that a body that's been recovered from Thebes is such of this missing Smenkare. And this body was buried at Amarna, moved to Thebes by Tutankhamun, and was left in a tomb which today we call KV-55. So I think that this is how the succession worked. And because of this, I feel that Nefertiti can't be Smenkare because I think that we have a body for Smenkare. But other people disagree, and other people, again have identified this KV-55 body that I think is Smenkare as Akhenaten. So I, a real jumble of evidence. I, I get the sense that you really enjoy what you do. <laughs> I love it. I find it absolutely fascinating. I also like yeah. reading detective stories. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm I think it. it's the sort of thing that you need to really sort of read up on and then write down the evidence and really everybody make their own, own conclusions. Because yeah. as I've said, if you've got two Egyptologists to talk about this, they would probably come up with slightly different conclusions. All it would take, of yeah. course, would be one letter or, or, or just one concrete piece of evidence it was a great disappointment when they found Tutankhamun's tomb and there was very little written material in it again it was all formulaic but nothing you know a diary saying who mum and dad were how he inherited the throne would have been fantastic and we just don't have that um, but to me this is what makes interesting make, makes Egyptology so interesting there's these these discussions about what might and might not have happened yeah it's it's great uh, Joyce. So, uh, so to clarify then, um, and the follow-up question I was going to ask, you actually handled it um, in the last part, so that's great. Um, so Tutankhamun was the pharaoh that uh, brought the capital back to Thebes. Yeah. I mean, having said that, which he did, undeniably he did, Tutankhamun seems to become pharaoh at about eight years of age, which means that he must have been born during the Amarna period because Akhenaten is on the throne for 17 years, which means that he actually personally had no knowledge of life apart from Atamana and with the new religion. So we're assuming here that he's been guided by older and more experienced people, including I, who we think might well be the father of Nefertiti and other, other courtiers as well, and maybe the surviving Amarna princesses, maybe even Nefertiti if she's still alive. So it's yes, it's Tutankhamun technically, but it, it's not really going to be him because he's too young to know that this is even possible. He's not got the experience. But yes, it, during his reign, this is what happens. He moves the court. 
Okay, how much older, approximately, if it's Nolan, was... Uh, and I'm presuming he was older. If he wasn't older, please, uh, you know, share that in your answer. How much older is it presumed that, or Nolan, that Akhenaten was um, older than Nefer Nefertiti? We don't know, um, because we don't know when she was born. Um, and also, well, we don't really know for him either. Trying to work it out... Um, I think when she died, well, she'd had six daughters, and we have to assume that she probably didn't have children before the age of 12, at least. So I think when she died, the very, very youngest, really, she's likely to have been is 20, and probably much, much older than that, you know, 30s, and so on. Again, with him, difficult to say. Depends how young he was when he came to the throne, but he was married when he came to the throne. It's hard to think of them as being very, very young. But there are some people who have suggested that he was indeed quite young and that he shared part of his reign with his father, which would mess up the chronology again. Um, I would have him in his 30s and her in her 30s as well, or her in her late 20s, early 30s, so maybe a bit older. Okay, all um, right. But we don't. without the bodies, it's very difficult to say. The body in KV55, which I think is Smenkare and some people think is Akhenaten, seems to me to be a bit young to be Akhenaten because it seems to be in its early 20s and that's that's the reason I'm excluding it um, from being Akhenaten. But that's based on the anatomy and the teeth. DNA analysis has suggested that it might have been Akhenaten, but there was all sorts of problems with mummy DNA analysis. Um, it's not it's not the easiest, it's not straightforward as it seems, because there are major problems with potential contamination and heat damage. So I wouldn't rely on ancient DNA analysis in the way that you would do, say, you know, in a crime investigation today, you would absolutely rely on it. But for the moment, I think we have to be slightly cautious about relying on it. And we should at least consider the other evidence like the anatomy and so on. Okay. The potentially the most important question in this episode, how should uh, Nefertiti uh, be most remembered? Okay, that's a great question. Go ahead and love it. Mm -hmm. um, people remember her as being beautiful because they've seen the bust that is in Berlin. And I think that's wrong. Firstly, because Egyptian art isn't portraiture. So actually, we don't really know what she looked like. The, the, the bust that people think of when they think of Nefertiti is the image that the royal family have sanctioned to be used. She might not have looked like that. We don't know. I think she should be remembered more for what she did than what she looked like. And I, I think the same is true of, of, of most people, of course. You know, it's, it's your deeds that matter, not what you actually happen to look like. And I think in a way, we've been a bit... Um, we've been so mesmerised by her beauty... As, as shown in this bus, that we've kind of forgotten that. But if we look beyond that, we can see a woman who, whether she ruled Egypt or not as an individual, was certainly very powerful, even if she remained a queen consort. She was powerful and influential. She was the mother of two daughters who seemed to have become queens of Egypt. She was the um, wife of a king. She was the daughter in law of, of a king and queen. She was also, if she's I's daughter, the daughter of a king. So she's an influential and important woman who obviously has political and religious power. And I think we should remember and respect her for that rather than constantly just talking about what we perceive to be her beauty. This was a dynamic and enjoyable chat. Thanks for coming on the show, Joyce. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Tildesley, again, is the author of the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode, Nefertiti, Egypt's Sun Queen, 
and Nefertiti's face, the creation of an icon. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Joyce and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.